Good morning, everyone. This morning, we have a couple of special guests in our in-person service, and I've asked them to share briefly with you online. Aaron and Mayuko are serving in student ministry in Japan, and they are among our newest missionaries. We're excited to have you get to know them today, and I trust that you'll support them in prayer as you have our other missionaries. Uh, you can refer to your announcements today for details, but listen now as they share their heart. Hi, everyone at Grace Baptist Church. Konnichiwa. My name is Aaron Gent. I'm Mayuko. We are missionaries with OMF International, working with university students in Japan. I grew up in Japan, as my parents are also missionaries there. I sense God called me to return to Japan and share Jesus with the Japanese people I grew up with when I was in my third year of Bible school. I'm Japanese. I was born in Japan. When I was in university, God called me to be a full-time Christian worker and had been praying about my calling for a long time until I met Aaron and got married to Aaron. We have been back in Canada for just a little over a year now for home assignment. We have been married for about a year and a half. And together as a couple, we are now preparing to return to Japan to continue ministry there. Our ministry is sharing the gospel with university students in the city of Sendai, together with a university student outreach team. I would like to share the story of one boy, Hayato. Waiting for him to arrive, I kept looking at my phone and the doors at the back of the sanctuary. It was December of 2018. I had invited him to come to my church's Christmas worship service and celebration meal. I had met him three months ago at the International Exchange Student Group activities of Tohoku Gakuin University. Um, for, uh, over the course of the several months, I had attended the activities of this student group and met many university students. Um, I would often go to dinner with them after the activities finished and I would exchange my contact information with them. I prayed and decided to invite three students from this student group to come to my church's special Christmas worship service. Now, Ling and Tatsumi had arrived on time, but Hayato was running late. I remember how startled he looked when he first opened the doors at the back of the sanctuary. He eventually found where I was sitting and he sat next to the seat, uh, sat on the seat I was keeping for him. After the service, he said to me, I thought all the people at church would be foreigners. I didn't know that there were Japanese people that go to church. This was his first time ever entering a church building. After this Christmas, he returned to church several times. I also invited him to my apartment to spend time together. During these times, I was able to share the gospel with him. He has, still hasn't believed in Jesus, but we are praying that he will come to believe in Jesus and accept him as his savior. There are many university students like Hayato who have never met another Christian and have never heard the gospel message. Our ministry is to meet these students, become their friend, and share the good news with them. The percentage of evangelical Christian in Japan is 0.5% and the number of youth in Japanese churches is very few. Our vision is to see young people in Japan come to faith 
and become joyful worshipers of God. Please pray for the salvation of Hayato and other students we met in Sendai whom we've shared the gospel with. Please pray for Christian university students in Japan to be bold in sharing their faith to their non-Christian friends. Please pray for our final preparations before returning to Japan. We hope to return to Japan in February of next year. We are thankful for this partnership with Grace Baptist Church. Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're in a series right now called The Unstuck Life. And according to the Bible, some people are stuck because they've never heard or only believe part of the gospel message. Others never learn to connect to God's power in their lives. And some people figure out the receiving, but not the sharing part. We're convinced that the path to the unstuck life is believe, connect, share. And we hope that God leads you along that path as we look at the Bible together. Now, today's passage looks at how to connect to God in prayer, but it does so in the context of one of our greatest problems. I was reading this week about Utsi the Iceman. Have you heard of him? I was interested because I thought he had a really cool name, <laughs> but that's not actually why he's so famous. His fame comes from, from the fact that his is the oldest human corpse to have ever been found intact. Back in 1991, two hikers in the Italian Alps discovered the body. And because of the ice and the dry mountain air, it was remarkably preserved. Scientists estimate that Utsi's corpse is more than 5,000 years old. And it's interesting because it gives us a window into another era. Forensic evidence indicated, for instance, that he was likely a shepherd. But I wondered what the cause of death might reveal about life in our distant past. Would they find that he was resting peacefully after dying of old age? Would he be in a posture of prayer showing evidence of ancient spirituality? Would they find traces of cancer or other sickness or disease? When the autopsy report was completed, it turned out that Utsi the Iceman had died with an arrow in his back. The world's oldest corpse was a murder victim. Now, what does that say about us? Maybe nothing, right? Maybe that was just a coincidence. <laughs> well, I was just about to conclude that when I read another news article about John Chapman and Chiquita Jenkins. Jenkins was charged with third-degree assault and Chapman was charged with disorderly conduct and had a gash on his head to show for it. It turns out that the weapons of choice for these two in this altercation were buffet tongs. They had gone out for dinner at the Meteor Buffet and things began to turn ugly when the crab legs were delayed. <laughs> when a fresh batch appeared after a 10 minute wait, people were scrambling to get at them and Chapman and Jenkins got angry and began to duel each other with the tongs. It doesn't appear that the human condition has changed all that much in the last 5,000 years. And the question it makes me ask is, why do we keep fighting with each other? Not just about crab legs, but about everything. More specifically, why do I keep fighting? Why do you keep fighting? 
Why do we keep getting angry with each other? Well, today's passage answers that question, but it does so with some unexpected solutions. And after all we've seen and experienced over the last 18 months, I think we need God's wisdom in this area more than ever. So if you have your Bible handy, I want to ask you to turn with me to James 4, verses 1 to 6. If you don't have a Bible, click on the link for today's passage in the description below. I'll read from James 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of God. Now, this passage gives three reasons why you and I keep arguing. The first is my selfishness. I almost never assume that this is the case, but the passage says that it's my drive to get what I want when you won't give it to me that stirs up my anger and causes my arguments. I keep arguing because of my selfishness. In verse one, we learn it's not just Utsi the Iceman or those with the two who are, those two are dueling with the buffet tongs that have a problem with arguing. James faced it in the church in which he ministered also. He asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, this was a period of history filled with tension and unrest. When Rome had initially conquered Israel, many Jews lost their farms and their land. They were reduced to poverty and hired themselves out to new landowners who made up the ruling elite. Oppressive taxes only added to people's desperation, and many were reduced to begging and slavery. Zealots were growing in number at this time, and they advocated fighting back against Rome. And people from all of these different groups were gathered together for worship and for fellowship. It's no wonder that peace and unity were a struggle. But James doesn't answer his own question the way we'd expect him to. Look at verse 1 again. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? I was figuring that he'd say, it's only natural that you'd be angry with each other. The way the rich are taking advantage of the poor is unacceptable. The way the government's treating you is appalling. Given all the injustice that you're facing, it's only right that you'd be arguing to get your way. But that's not what he says. He says the battles you have on the outside start with the battle that you've got on the inside. Your passions are completely unplugged. Your desires for comfort have taken over. Your hunger for your own sense of fairness has taken you hostage and you're out of control. In verse two, he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
Now, the church members probably weren't actually murdering each other. But Jesus had connected murder with uncontrolled anger. And so James connects the two here. It's like me saying that the reason you keep shooting each other in the back with arrows is your selfishness. That's why you keep stabbing each other with buffet tongs. And if you hadn't noticed, there's been an awful lot of that over the last year and a half. We've gotten angry at people who don't wear masks. We've gotten angry at people who do wear masks. We've gotten angry at people who support the government. And we've gotten angry at people who don't support the government. And the people who have gathered the greatest following during this pandemic have been the ones who have fed our anger. The people who've articulated our version of outrage or given us more reasons to justify it have developed huge platforms. And amidst all the shouting, we've forgotten Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5.22, he was the one that said, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. We're the ones who are supposed to keep our anger in check. We're supposed to bring our passions under control. We're the people who are supposed to turn the other cheek. And when we don't, it fuels our arguments. And maybe you'd hear, you hear that and you'd say, Paul, I agree with that, but I just can't do anything about it. I know what you're saying about having a war going on inside me, but I just don't seem to be able to get my selfishness to lay down its arms. Well, that's exactly where James turns next. After saying that I keep arguing because of my selfishness, he then shows that I keep arguing because of my prayerlessness. When I look to people to meet the needs that only God can meet, then I'm inevitably going to get frustrated. When I treat you like my Messiah, then dis disappointment and eventually anger can't be far off. I need to look to God. And when I don't, I keep arguing because of my prayerlessness. This principle gets brought out in a couple ways. Look at what he says in verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. Does that seem odd to you? In one sense, they were asking. They were asking the way the people in the buffet line were asking for crab legs. They were asking and demanding of each other. But James's point is that they weren't asking God. They were fighting with people to get what only God can give. But then he realizes that many of them would say what you would probably say, but I am praying. <laughs> And he responds to that idea in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see what it says in the middle? You ask wrongly. Did you know that there's a wrong way to pray? The wrong way to pray is forgetting who God is and not thinking about what God's will is and just barging into his presence in prayer with your greed and your selfishness and expecting him to jump at your command. Some people come away from prayer just as angry and selfish as when they've started. But that's not because the prayer didn't work. It's because they don't understand prayer. They ask wrongly. If God is more than a divine vending machine, then we need to think about who he is and what he cares about. And he doesn't care much for me getting my own way. His purposes are bigger than that. In prayer, I'm coming before a God who loves me and who is wiser than I could possibly grasp. 
So of course I'm telling him about what I want and what I think I need. But I'm also listening and trying to understand what he wants and what he says I need. I ask rightly when I pray the way Jesus prayed in the garden in Luke 22, verse 42. There he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In prayer, we deal with our anger and frustration by bringing it before God and asking him to sort it out. We come to him in humility, realizing that we might not see everything. We might be missing something. And that's often what we learn in prayer when we're forced to wait or when the answer is no. Because you know what our biggest problem is? We don't think we keep arguing because of our selfishness or because of our prayerlessness. You know why we think we keep arguing, don't you? We think we keep arguing because we're right. <laughs> and we're absolutely convinced that we're right. As long as we just have our eyes on that other person in the, in the buffet line, the lineup for crab legs, we tell ourselves they must be stupid and I'm right, so I better convince them. And if I can't, maybe I'll stab them with a buffet tongue. It's only in prayer that we allow for the possibility that we might be wrong. When we pray rightly, we listen to God and we discern his will. We ask him to teach us and we ask him to dismantle the inner war that we have in our souls. But when we don't pray or when we pray wrongly, the inner war rages on and we keep fighting. So I keep arguing because of my selfishness and because of my prayerlessness, but also because of my worldliness. When I let my values be shaped by the world, I begin to see problems the way the world sees them, instead of how Jesus sees them. I begin to use the world's strategies to deal with the problems that I have instead of Jesus' strategies. Before long, it's all about me and my rights and my crab legs. I keep arguing because of my worldliness. In verse 4, James's words become severe. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, remember that he's talking to people in the church, but they're people who have so let their values be shaped by the world that they're fighting and arguing like the world. And God sees it as a betrayal. To him, it's like they've given themselves to another. It feels like they've turned their backs on him. Even when they turn to him in prayer, they're still thinking like the world and not letting themselves be changed by his presence. I think we can do this in so many ways. Einstein gives an example of one of those ways. In 1996, Albert Einstein's letters were auctioned off, and in one of them, there was a list of expectations they wrote to his first wife, Maliva Marek. It was a difficult point in their marriage, so he drew up a contract of sorts to try to solve things on his terms. It included the following. You will make sure that my clothes and laundry are kept in good order, that I receive three meals regularly in my room, you will stop talking to, my, to me if I request it, and you will renounce all personal relations with me insofar as they are not completely necessary for social reasons. 
Not surprisingly, she left him several months later. You can't bring the world's values to a problem and expect heaven-sent results. In Einstein's case, his values had so warped his understanding of the solution to his problems that even praying would do little good. He needed God's word as much as he needed God's grace. And so as you look at the conflicts and tensions in your life, you need to ask whether you're seeing them through the lens of scripture or whether the world has hijacked your thinking. As Paul said in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. We demonstrate our loyalty to God and our love for God by aligning our values with His. We let our thinking be shaped by Scripture, and in prayer we submit our will to His. And maybe you've never seen your conflicts like that or never seen prayer like that. But it's how God changes us. And it's how we express our loyalty to him. And it's our loyalty that he longs for. That's why it says in verse 5, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. That's actually the first note of hope in this whole passage. Do you hear what it's saying? God's jealous for us. And that's a good thing. Jealousy is the opposite of indifference. When, it's, when it comes from a right place, when it comes from a pure heart, it's an expression of love. God yearns for us even when we're grabbing for the buffet tongs. God fights for us even when we're fighting for the world. God doesn't give up on us even when we seem to have given up on his will and his ways. And so in verse 6 we read, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God will give us more grace if we only humble ourselves before him. He'll give us a grace to grow and the grace to change. He'll give us a grace to see our lives and our frustrations in light of his purposes and his plan. And without it, our selfishness would be our undoing. Our prayerlessness would be our downfall. Our worldliness would be our end. But God gives more grace. We'd still be shooting each other in the back 5,000 years from now if we were left to ourselves. But God gives more grace. And so the call is to humble yourself before him in prayer. Set aside time to be in his presence so he can change you. The pride he's talking about here is the attitude that says, I've got this. I don't need to pray. I don't need to listen. I've given my wife a list of my expectations. If she does what I want, we won't have any problems. God opposes that kind of pride. He stands in our way when we try to live like that. And thank God that he does. We need him to rescue us from ourselves. Now, as we close our time now, I want to urge you to examine yourself. Who gets you angry? Who gets you frustrated? Ask yourself whether the war you have with them isn't a war that started in your own heart. Have you allowed selfishness to take over? Have you allowed anger to be your guide? Have you allowed pride to keep you from seeing? And maybe some of you would say, Paul, 
I'm honestly not sure. How could I know? Well, one of the ways that you know is through the fruit that you see in your life. According to Galatians 5.22, where the Holy Spirit rules, there is love, joy, peace, it's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what we see in Jesus, right? Remember how he healed the ear of the man who came to arrest him and eventually lead him to his death? That's what it looks like when God is in control. And maybe you'd say, I don't think I could do that, Paul. And I'd agree with you. But I'd also say, but he gives more grace. Humble yourself in prayer before God to receive that grace. Humble yourself in prayer and pray for your enemy. Humble yourself in prayer and say, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see in your word a mirror into our own soul. We recognize the, the selfishness that there is in our, in our hearts. And we confess that too often we let it take over. We let it guide us and take us to places that we should never end up. We confess our lack of prayer, the pride that thinks that we don't need your help, we don't need your guidance. Help us, Father, to take time, to take time to not only tell you what we want, but to hear what you want. Help us to take time in prayer to hear your heart and hear your mind. Help us to humble ourselves. To see in the pages of scripture your will for our lives and submit to it. We receive your grace. We cling to it. And we believe that your grace is the only thing that can rescue us. Your grace is the only thing that can change us. And so we receive it in abundance and we look to you for the strength to walk and to follow after Jesus. Thank you for him. Thank you for the life that we enjoy in him. We pray in his name. Amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you to see how to connect to God in prayer. I, I hope you've seen that prayer is more than just lists and repetition. It's turning in humility to the only one who can change us. It's the way that we receive the grace that we need to keep following in Jesus' footsteps. If it's stirred up questions or you'd like to know more about what's involved in a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, then share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.